Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, I'm Jody Vance in for Roy Green this weekend, and welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Today, we explore the issues around working from home in the long term with Professor David Swag of the University of Toronto Department of Management and Professor of Organizational Behavior. Some really great tips. Dr. Peter J. Hotez gives us the latest news on vaccines and immunity and what's happening in the United States with regard to COVID-19. Racism and violent crime against Asian Canadians is up. Sunny Wong shares details about the grassroots movement called Help Not Hate to help combat this disturbing trend. And how can you fly safely during a pandemic? Dr. Sajad Fazal, public health researcher at the University of Calgary, has a few great tips. It's all coming up on the Roy Green Show podcast. Home offices. Who knew that we could all work from home? Do you like working from home? I'm currently, literally, guys, I'm currently broadcasting live coast to coast on the Chorus Radio Network from a card table in my 12-year-old son's bedroom. (laughs) I'm not kidding. It's true. It's very much a new reality that seems to be sort of setting in for the long haul, as it were. So let's bring in an expert on such things. Professor David Swag from U of T's Department of Management and Professor of Organizational Behavior is with us. Hi, Professor. Hi, Jody. How are you? I'm good. I'm having fun here at the card table, uh, used to being yeah. in a big studio with bells and whistles, and instead yeah. I'm duct tape and, you know, chewing gum, everything together, and, and luckily have a good microphone and a great team behind the scenes. But working from home can be uh, either a blessing or a curse, can't it? Yeah. Well, I'm sitting on a pillow in my bedroom right now talking to you from my home there office. There you go. <laughs> so... <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> what a reality we are living in. This is it's uh, it's hashtag COVID life. Um, it certainly can be a blessing or a curse, and depending on the situation we're in. For some of us, we've made the best of it for the past few months, and for others, we're trying to figure out how we're going to do this for the foreseeable future. Um, so we swing on the pendulum here of whether we love it or hate it, depending on the day and depending on the situation uh, that we're dealing with. How. Do you think this is the new normal to a large degree? Do you think, think how how do you feel the society is going to react to this long term? Well, you know, we've all had to do this. Uh, You know, middle of March, we all did to make this work and we've done the best we can. I think the longer this goes on, the longer this will be obviously the new normal. We'll we'll see how how much we go back to the workplace uh, until there is some sort of vaccine or until this pandemic ends. Um, but one thing that is this great social experiment we've all been a part of has done is really made it uh, made us aware that we can do it. Um, it's just a matter of whether we want to continue doing it and what form it continues to look like in the, in the months ahead. You know, Professor, that's a big part of it, the, the buy-in nature of it. Like if, if we had been told right off the hop back in March that our reality would look as it does now, we would have all had mm-hmm. this incredible level of panic. The fear oh, would have sure. been unmanageable. People argue like, we, why didn't they just tell us this at the beginning? Well, because we would have freaked out as a society. Yeah. Uh, we saw a little bit of that in the early days of hoarding toilet paper and such. Um, sure. It seems that societally we've calmed down a little bit, but this new normal mm-hmm. of working from the home office, of, of having that uncertainty surrounding our kids going back to school and sort of managing our lives mm-hmm. and, and the behavioral piece of this, if phase three is long term if phase three continues until there is a treatment or vaccine for COVID-19 we could be doing this 
uh, a year more. That's right, or more. And that's that's yeah. the, that's the issue right now. I mean, yeah, when this all started, we're all worried about whether we're going to get toilet paper and masks and, and hand sanitizer. Now we're dealing with all the uncertainty of how long this is going to go on, right? And we yeah. don't know whether this is going to be the next six months, whether it's the next year or two or longer. And so that's what's creating all the anxiety for us in figuring out, you know, we've all managed to do what we needed to do over the past few months, but how much longer are we going to have to keep this up? Right? So there's a lot of people just hanging on by their fingernails and we're, you know, we're all anxious about what the future is going to hold. And I think the overarching message must be we will get to the other side of this. We will get through this sure. together. It is that, you know, that that want to not panic in a time that feels so odd and awkward. And we've spent a great deal of time over the last couple of hours talking about the impacts of COVID-19, societally speaking, and trying to sort of manage the 20-somethings that are, are like, well, it's not coming for us. We're fine. Not understanding sort of the science behind that. Right, but from right. the workforce piece and the organizational yeah. and sort of behavioral piece that you can lend your expertise to? What are some tips that you could give us or, or expectations we should, you know, cap for ourselves? Well, I think we have to expect that this is going to be the way it is for the next foreseeable future. So let's try and make the best of it. Try and, you know, early on, what I was suggesting to people was try and create your own workspace within your house as best you can. Try and create a physical and psychological barrier between your work and your home life as best you can. And this is the key, as best you can. Um, and, you know, make sure that you're taking care of yourself. I mean, a lot of us who are working from home, we haven't seen a huge fall off in productivity, but at the same time, we're seeing people working longer hours than ever because they're using the time that they save, they're saving and commuting to actually engage in work. So now we have to focus on if this is going to be a longer term issue, let's focus on our mental health, let's focus on our physical health, and really take the time to take breaks, to recharge, to physically rejuvenate, to help us, and because that'll help us with our long term productivity as well. We almost need to clock in and clock out, like punch the time card and, and close the door to that home office and say, I'm not going back there. I'm not checking an email. I'm not yeah. checking my phone. I'm turning it all off yeah. until tomorrow because you used to be able to yeah. leave your workplace. Well, you know, more or less. I mean, we're all tied by the electronic leash of our phones and, the, and constant True. access to email, and we're still there. Um, but it does take a lot of discipline for each of us to say, you know what? I've done my work for today, and as best as possible, I'm going to try to avoid uh, being interrupted with work-related issues now that I'm, you know, moved away from my office. Um, you know, and it's it's incumbent upon leaders too and managers not to not to send emails to employees after hours and expect immediate responses because as soon as you pick up the phone and you look at your email and you see one, even if your boss says, "Don't answer it now. Wait till tomorrow." You're already you're already in work mode again. So we have yeah, to try and avoid up. getting trapped by that. That's a really good piece of advice there. We're with Professor David Zwag, who's at U of Toronto Department of uh, Management, Professor of Organizational Behavior. Can I ask you about the the secondary education piece to this as well? I mean, there are a lot of students who are dedicated yep. and committed to to getting to that next level and and now facing yep. possibly having to attend classes in a virtual sense some who are used to yep. or who are really looking forward to having the hands-on lab experience yep. uh, of whatever yep. their their education might have before them how do you how do you sort of manage the behavior or the mindset of of that sort of being stunted well, a little bit 
you know what? I just finished teaching a course in organizational behavior on Thursday. It was my last lecture. And I did this entire course online synchronously. And I did the very best I could to try and replicate um, doing it face-to-face. Obviously, there were constraints, but I tried to make it as interactive as possible. I tried to be as hand-on as possible, give students lots of assignments and exercises, working together. We have great technology. Of course, it doesn't replace face-to-face interaction, but this is the situation that we're in. So we're all just trying to make the best of it, um, use the tools that we have to try and, and replicate um, you know, our in-person lectures the very best we can. And we're all hoping that we get back to back to the classes as soon as possible. Right. We just have to sort of surf this time that we have to engage in a virtual sense and, and learn and glean what we can. I've got the, I've got the uh, tween on my hands. As I said, I'm sitting in my 12-year-old's room uh, yeah. in my home office. And, and his, you know, back-to-school concerns and, and what will that be like and what is he missing out of? And I keep telling him, you're going to be able to look back at 2020 and tell people that you were headed into high school during a pandemic. That alone is such a a story that when you're in it, you can't feel what eventually the lessons will be that you glean from it. And I praise all of my students for their resilience in dealing with the situation as well as they are, right? Because they're adapting to an entire new way of learning in a new environment. And that kind of resilience will serve them well when they hit the workplace and they know how to deal with these kinds of uh, situations. Thank you very much, Professor David Zwag. We really appreciate your time today. My pleasure. He is at the University of Toronto in the Department of Management and Professor of Organizational Behavior. Some good reminders right there. With an astonishing 4.19 million reported confirmed cases of COVID-19, 1.26 million recovered and approaching 150,000 deaths, the global epicenter of the COVID pandemic is most certainly the United States in particular the southern U.S. Uh, We're going to take you to Houston now where we connect with the founding dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine and professor of pediatrics and molecular virology and microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine where he is also director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. Our good friend Dr. Peter J. Hotez is on the line. Professor, good to talk to you. Nice to hear from you again. Let's begin with something that you've been talking about for, it feels like months now, you have been sounding the alarm as to how COVID-19, how this virus is impacting marginalized communities in devastating ways. What are you seeing now? Yes, it's an aspect of the uh, COVID-19 epidemic that's often not reported in the U.S. The fact that we're seeing the permanent injuries, disabilities, and now deaths, uh, particularly among in low-income neighborhoods, and among uh, Hispanic and uh, African-American communities. And when you, you know, for instance, in Houston, if you see the daily death report, uh, Houston Health Department provides not the names, but the ages and the race race and ethnicity. And you just go down the list and you just see it's all of the uh, uh, people of color, uh, black and brown communities just getting decimated by this virus. And it's not just happening in Houston, it's in all the metro areas of Texas, San Antonio, Dallas, Austin, but also in Miami and and Phoenix. And and that's an especially devastating part. We're failing to protect our most vulnerable population. So many are essential workers who, you know, don't have the luxury of working via Skype and Zoom remotely. They have to physically be in the workplace. And we don't have the full 
tally and the full information, but my hunch and my suspicion is these communities are really getting hammered. I was reading an article where you were quoted and uh, it was, it floored me to hear uh, or to read from a healthcare worker inside a hospital in the south of Texas, basically saying when you drive by on the freeway and see this facility, when you see this hospital from the outside, I wish you could have x-ray vision to see the chaos within the overwhelmed healthcare workers currently trying to battle back against COVID-19. What is the state of affairs with regard to, uh, to frontline healthcare workers in the southern U.S.? Well, what we're seeing in multiple areas, and including South Texas, is the staff's getting exhausted because, you know, you're donning and doffing PPE multiple times a day, but now also they're getting sick. Uh, there's just no way to avoid it. We're seeing very high rates of COVID-19 among the frontline healthcare workers, and, uh, and we're running out of staff. So in many cases, the federal government's had to fly in people from different parts of the country. And this was what I worried about the most back in uh, February, March, when we knew COVID-19 was going to hit the U.S., because that's when we saw the mortality climb especially high in, in Spain and Italy and New York, and, and we're seeing it all over again in the southern metro area. So this is such a frustrating aspect of COVID-19. Everything we're seeing was both predicted and predictable, and, and yet there didn't seem to be the political will to halt it. And there seems to be that disconnect as well. I mean, certainly you are working on so many fronts. You've got a vaccine in development that you're working on, which is your forte. It is what you do. You're you're also trying to uh, advocate to those who are afraid to take their children in for their regular vaccines to protect them from other viruses and, and issues that, that can be staved off with proper vaccinations timed correctly, you know, with you, your role as the director of uh, the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. I mean, you are seeing that number drop off the scale as well, which is extraordinarily concerning. People talking about how, you know, the anti-vax community talking about staying away from flu shots and flu shots have never been more important. Can you give our listener the, the, the 411 on why all of these other pieces of the puzzle that are sort of being distracted uh, people are distracted away from during COVID-19, why we need to bring those back to the fore. Yeah, we're seeing multiple things happening. Uh, one, the Centers for Disease Control here has reported how when that with the initial shutdown in March, parents stopped bringing their kids into the pediatrician, so vaccination rates started to decline precipitously, especially measles and other uh, uh, vaccines we give to young kids. It's coming back up a little bit now, but uh, it's still pretty low. And now you also have the anti-vaccine groups have uh, somehow latched onto this COVID-19 issue to gain strength. And but I, so I worry they'll permanently block that that gradual return. And now we're seeing them, you know, again focusing on blocking influenza vaccinations. But then they've they've enlarged their remit to a larger anti-science function. So now they're campaigning against masks and social distancing and, uh, and, and all, all of these things. So the result is just this uh, general deterioration in public health, and, and especially in the southern U.S. where the anti-science groups are, are very strong. And, and I'm not exactly sure what's going to bring it back. I'm out there every day, you know, focusing not only on our vaccine program, but also communicating 
the apocalypse uh, among low-income communities and the anti-science groups. So hopefully making some impact, but it's it's a it's a it's a very bad situation here in the country right now. It seems so. Uh, watching from afar, it's difficult to consume the sort of anti-science rhetoric coming from the highest of political levels. There seems to be such a disconnect. Your voice cutting through with, please listen to science, you know, and in even trying to help protect those few colleagues of yours in, in science who are stepping forward to to say, you know, stop the stop the dogpile on uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci because the politicians have decided to use him as some sort of a scapegoat. How do we return science to, uh, or, or give science the reins here? Because as you predicted back in February and March, this surge that would happen, what are we looking at in the, in the days and weeks and even months to come as there is really nothing in place to, to slow the spread or, or stop this surge? Well, you know, I've put out a, a plan for the nation, uh, and I and I wanted everyone to see it, so I put it out in a journal that absolutely everybody reads, Microbes and Infection. I'm sure you're going to get your copy pretty soon. Everybody, yeah. And, uh, mm-hmm. I'm joking. Where do we get that? Uh, but yeah, that, I want that. But at least it's not on the Internet, and uh, it's on my Twitter feed. And But it basically says, look, we're going in the wrong direction. We don't really have a federal plan. It's always been the states out in front with – the federal government providing some backup support, and that approach has just failed miserably. And we need to take lessons from places like Canada and, and your, some of the European countries and put out a pretty aggressive federal program. Some states are already there, like up in northern New England. Others need a huge amount of time and effort. The point is it's doable. We just need the political will, and we could do it by October 1 if we start now. But, you know, trying to get the White House moving on this has been has been really challenging, and you know I'm not certain that we've dropped as far as we can uh, to get them motivated to do something. But the numbers are pretty frightening. The they say that by October we'll hit well over 200,000 deaths. At this rate, we'll probably get there sooner. We'll probably be at 150,000 deaths by the end of this week, this coming week. Mm-hmm. And it keeps on going up from there. And, and there seems to be this lack of understanding that it doesn't go away by itself. It, it's going to require uh, intervention and public health communication. And so far, we, we're just not seeing it. Uh, most scientists uh, being very optimistic might uh, think that if, it were, if there were to be a vaccine, it really wouldn't be before 2021. What's uh, I think also uh, important is that uh, we do these uh, trials properly. It kind of looks like spring of 2021. Maybe some some are saying that maybe by the end of 2020. Are, are making predictions like that um, risky, Dr. Hotez? Well, I think it's really, but I think, you know, the problem is the journalists often want to sort of get get you to give a specific time frame, and I understand that. And I'm often I often disappoint journalists because I actually explain why I gave I often give answers to say the earliest third quarter of 2021, and and why that is. And not only that, I tried to add to the fact that in addition to the time it takes for phase three clinical trials, ten to thirty thousand person studies to show these vaccines actually work and they're safe. I also remind them, you know, the evidence that we have workable vaccines, I think we will have workable vaccines, but the actual evidence, when you look at it, is quite modest, right? The AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine is based on 
reasonable immune responses in 10 human volunteers that received two doses of the vaccine, the Pfizer one, and on, uh, 12 human volunteers that received two doses of the 50 microgram dose. And, and I say, you know, to go from there to be confident to say we're going to have a vaccine by the end of the year just is, is ridiculous. So I try to make people understand uh, the, the reality of the data that we have and what, and try to manage expectations. And the problem is, there's an enormous amount of hype coming out of the White House. Uh, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, an, an inaccurate information. And then you've got the companies sending out these irresponsible press releases and also not really explaining to the public what these vaccines will actually do. Uh, some We have this misunderstanding that we just wait around for the vaccine, then we all go dancing in the streets. But many of these vaccines may only be partially protective. They may reduce the likelihood of you're getting severely ill, which is important, but they may not prevent actual infection or or they therefore may not interrupt transmission. We just don't know yet. And not only that, additional vaccines are going to come along. We have a new vaccine that we're uh, scaling up uh, for, for India, and we hope to have more announcements about that next week or the week after. And uh, and, you know, maybe we can do something with Canada as well, and uh, because I think Canada is going to need its own vaccine, and uh, and and so there's just a lot of just uh, a lot of simplistic information, and this really goes to a fundamental problem of science communication in this country. Um, we in the, and actually in all of North America, we do a terrible job generally. Either uh, we get scientists out there. Well, first of all, we either get scientists who don't don't communicate at all and that's that's common or if they do they tend to use a lot of uh, jargon and confuse people no one really understands what they're talking about and then one of the more, more common mistakes scientists make is they they think they they think they have some somebody in a department of communication somewhere told them they have to talk to the the public as though they're at the sixth grade level which is absolutely not true so they wind up sounding very condescending and talking down to the public and that's that's a turnoff as well. So it's we need more scientists who know how to convey complicated concepts in, in straightforward non-jargon language to give really provide those realistic expectations and that's totally missing in the American landscape right now. Canada actually does a, a much better job uh, I think just like the statement you heard from uh, that Canadian uh, official that you just mentioned. I, I, I'm sorry, I didn't catch Dr. the title, but yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, he, what he said was, was right, you know, and this, and, you know, we have to, we have to learn how to speak to the public like they're adults and not treat them like children. And, and we just don't do that enough. That is certainly happening here in Canada. Science has taken the lead. Uh, the daily briefings are run largely by our either provincial health officers or uh, Dr. New, Dr. Howard New appears daily with Dr. Teresa Tam, who is our chief health officer. They run those press briefings and it really is informative. We've learned a great deal here in Canada, which makes it difficult to look south and 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 feel the concern and that comes with watching the surges that are happening just over the border. I mean, I'm sitting in British Columbia where we had 27 new test case positive cases 
yesterday uh, on Friday uh, with 12 people in hospital and two in intensive care. And just on the other side of the Washington state border, they had 837 new test case positive tests or cases and 12 deaths. I mean, it, it's so different, but, but we're just inches apart. It's really something. And I think you hit the yeah, nail no, on the head, Dr. It is absolutely, It is absolutely striking. This is what, this is the power of leadership in science communication. And remember, all those numbers you quoted in terms of cases multiplied by a factor of between five and 10 in terms of the actual number of cases, because we miss so many, and then you get a better sense of what we're talking about. And then, you know, when you get those kinds of numbers in the U.S. and that level of transmission, you know, you really cannot do contact tracing effectively. You need to bring that all back down to containment mode, and, and, and then wearing the masks and contact tracing will, will have a much more powerful impact. And trying to explain that has also been challenging. So right now, we're still in a pretty dire situation, and hopefully something will turn it around. The one number that's really gone up exponentially in terms of a rise in, in racist acts and acts of hate is against uh, Asian Canadians and the Asian community. So, you know, by now, most Canadians have seen the viral videos of those awful hate crimes across the country. It's not in just one area or another. Random violent acts rooted in sort of misguided, well, not sort of, certainly misguided stance that somehow being an Asian descent, of Asian descent, that is, uh, makes one responsible for this pandemic. It, it certainly does not help when the President of the United States insists on referring to COVID-19 as the China virus. It is absolutely irresponsible and cringeworthy to, to hear such dog whistles uh, from the White House. So to put push back on this hate, we're bringing in Sonny Wong of Hamazaki Wong Marketing Group to talk about this grassroots movement that Sonny and his group of, of like-minded citizens have put together, uh, this group of volunteers working as one against these acts of hate. Sunny, thank you for coming on today. Hi, Jody. Great to be here. Can you explain to our listener what Health Not Hate is about and, and, and how it came to be, this, this grassroots movement? Yeah, well, about uh, in early March, as the COVID-19 pandemic was beginning to hit and things were, were shutting down, it, it occurred to me that this racism that we're ex experiencing against the, the Asian community was wrong. And of course, a lot of it was, not a lot of it, it was directly tied into the COVID-19 pandemic. And th this is sort of misguided um, idea that the Asian community was responsible for COVID-19 and the pandemic and, of course, the shutting down of, of the economy. And that was just a wrong-headed approach. So we thought, okay, what can we do as as marketers, people in media to to make a difference and, and really to change that narrative? So we brought together a team of like-minded people, as you were saying, across the country and invoked our um, network in marketing and media to start a campaign to really change this perception. And of course, the idea really is you shouldn't be hating people. We should be focusing on health. Uh, regardless of how um, COVID-19 started, the reality is is that uh, mental, emotional, spiritual, and at the end of the day, community health is is the ultimate goal. So let's not misdirect our our feelings and our attention towards hatred when that is totally unfounded. Um, what we also did was 
looked at how we can be more influential in reaching out to to the general population and say, you know, what's going to make them change their mind and change that narrative? And of course, um, people that have high profile positions positions in society was where we thought we could make a difference. And I happen to say that this intersection of, of film and television as well. So brought um, together film and television and media celebrities such as yourself, Jody. That's right. Full disclosure. I'm very proud to be a member of the Health Not Hate movement, a volunteer with this movement, because uh, the message is, is, is one of hope and, and, and want to make the world a better place. Yeah. And I think really when we began this initiative, the whole idea of, of health and, and because health actually stands uh, in, in before hate in, in our message, what that ultimately was was the important goal. Yes, this started as racism against uh, Asian Canadians. But at the end of the day, um, as you mentioned earlier in your introduction, the idea of racism right across the board is is what we're looking to to combat and eradicate. And the more this comes out into the open, and it's really in a Pandora's box that's been open as a result, we're, we're seeing more and more that it's not just simple discrimination, it's not racism, it's systemic racism. And manifested every day through microaggressions that we don't even know about because we've mm-hmm. been brought up with, with this whole um, subconscious and unconscious notion that this is how things are. But when you begin to see beneath the veneer of, of racism, you really begin to understand that it's far deeper than what meets the eye. In fact, you know, I think um, racism and, and, and the, the, on the other side of it, social equality, it's, it's really the issue of our time. And we're beginning to see it now. And I think, you know, until, until I die, it's still going to continue to be an issue. How do people get involved in Health Not Hate? How do we support it? Well, they can come to our website. Uh, there's a contact form. They can fill it in if they want to volunteer or um, do simple things like donations. But I think at the end of the day, it's, it's speaking out. It's, mm. it's um, providing a voice. It's, um, it's this whole idea of allyship um, in, our, in our messaging and in our, in our ads. It isn't just the Asian community that we depict. It's people from all, all walks of life, whether you're um, yellow, you're black, you're brown, you're white. And if we can get um, purple and green and orange people, I would put them in there too. But the whole idea of an entire community coming together to say that racism is wrong has really been our goal. And we're seeing it now in this description called allyship. So it's really supporting those individuals and community groups and and speaking out against racism in all its forms, whether through social media or even having conversations at home over the kitchen table with your friends and family. Yeah, it's the uncomfortable conversation that that bears the most fruit where you can you can acknowledge, you can discuss and you can move forward and each little domino toward a better Canada. Thank you, Sunny Wong, for taking some time out for us today. I really appreciate it. Health Not Hate is the initiative. Sunny Wong is our guest and uh, it is something that we can all get behind as Canadians. If you're traveling, are you a tourist in your own town? Are you exploring your province? Or are you somebody who has to fly that essential work that must be done and must involve getting on a plane during a pandemic? For many, it is a terrifying thought. For others, it's just not optional. 
So how do you stay safe flying during a pandemic? Uh, Dr. Sajad Faisal uh, has written an op-ed in the National Post that everybody should read. It's got a lot of common sense written into it, but also some solid, legitimate tips on how you can travel in the time of COVID-19 by air and uh, protect yourself in the process. So, Dr. Fazel, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Let's dive right into some of the tips. As I said, some of them are very common, commonsensical. I mean, we have been hearing since early March that we should be washing our hands constantly, almost until raw. Like we are the hand hygiene of today versus what it was just six short months ago is astonishing. But when we're touching services in an airport, even if they're being sanitized regularly, we really do need to not just wash hands, but carry hand sanitizer, right? Correct. Yeah, you should. Uh, everyone should be carrying uh, hand sanitizer whenever they step out of their house, especially if you're in an airport um, after checking in, after uh, um, finishing security, after uh, putting your bags inside, when after boarding the aircraft, uh, um, before exiting it. Wh- wh- whenever you finish any process, um, touching something that you don't know um, how it is cleaned because you aren't aware, you haven't cleaned it yourself. It's better to. Uh, dab some hand sanitizer on your hands and uh, rub your hands regularly. So, Dr. Fazel, being a public health researcher at the University of Calgary, what have we learned over the last six months with regard to how the contact surfaces work with COVID-19? We see people wearing, you know, latex gloves. Or do we need to have multiple layers of clothing that once we move through the airport, we remove those? Do we need a barrier, a face shield? Should we be wearing goggles? What, what should we look like when we're getting onto an aircraft? Right. So I think one of the uh, most recommended things is to put on a face mask um, for the sake of protecting others. Um, and of course, this only works if everybody adheres to it, right? Uh, yeah. So you wear a face mask to protect somebody else and they wear to protect you. Um, in most uh, aircraft, it's something that is uh, mandatory, which is, uh, which is very good. Um, so yeah, so you see somebody wearing a face mask, you see them carrying their hand sanitizer, um, and you see them being cognizant of not... Um, you're not touching every surface. Like we have this habit, you sit on a chair on a bench, you get up, you, you, you touch the surface. Um, you, you walk the stairs, you touch the railing. So there is this habit that's there. And yes, for, for maybe somebody who's, uh, who has a disability or is, is elderly, that, that is a necessity at times. But for um, somebody who's uh, pretty healthy and fit, um, if they do that, it's just out of habit. And I think these are some of the habits that we have to be cognizant of reducing. Um, trying to reduce the amount of surfaces we touch um, is something to, to keep in mind. It certainly is. And that's what brings me to the latex glove question. Because seeing people who wear them in public and are touching multiple surfaces and then picking up maybe their phone or they're touching their face, adjusting their face mask, trying to do the right thing, and yet putting themselves at risk, thinking that the latex glove somehow isn't picking up all of the bacteria of all sorts, never mind possibly COVID-19, um, it, it doesn't protect you to wear these gloves. It just protects your hands from getting dirty. The gloves are dirty. Right, you're right, exactly. And I think uh, that's where the, the, 
the, the issue is because then somebody thinks they have a false sense of security and then they can mm-hmm. touch any surface. And it doesn't make sense if you touch, uh, if you wear a glove, even if you're going grocery shopping or at an airport, you touch surfaces and then when you touch your phone, just think of it as if you have transmitted whatever uh, was on your gloves to your phone or to your face or to your mask. And that is what we are trying to avoid. Um, unless you're wearing these gloves and then you're sanitizing them, um, which I don't see the need of it, which is why I always say that as long as you have a hand sanitizer with you, uh, you're pretty good to go. We're going to open up the phone lines for questions for Dr. Sajad Fazal, a public health researcher at the University of Calgary. If you've got questions about travel flying in a time of COVID-19 or really anything surrounding uh, how to protect yourself with the virus, you have an opportunity here to speak with an expert. So you can call us at one 800 263 24 Two eight one eight hundred two six three two four two eight. But Dr. Fazl, I want to get back specifically to flying. So many people. I mean, I'm not the world's best flyer anytime. So flying during a pandemic is is beyond for me. But if if it was essential, if I had to, you know, reach a family member on the other side, and I just had to go. Um, I I fear that I would fall into my old habits of, you know, standing in the lineup to be seated or scooching by somebody to try and get my, you know, uh, carry on luggage into the overhead compartment. We're seeing, you know, those old habits really be sort of put forward as as huge no-nos. True. Yes. And uh, and I think and this is why uh, um, we see that there's a rise in cases all over Canada, right, in the past uh, Two weeks because uh, mm-hmm. uh, some of us have uh, have gotten pandemic fatigue. We are tired of, of being on constant alert. We are tired of thinking about safety all the time. But um, we, we need to be uh, constantly vigilant. And I always say that try to make it a habit and keep change your mindset. So what I personally practice is whenever I go outside, when I step outside my house, I assume everybody I meet who is not in my bubble has COVID-19. Similarly, I assume every surface that I haven't, uh, that I'm not familiar with, um, has COVID-19. And that automatically makes it a habit. So when I'm uh, walking um, at the bottom of my apartment in the lobby and I see somebody coming, I either wait on a corner or I turn the other way uh, or, 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 I, or, or I move a couple of feet away. Uh, similarly, when I come back home from the grocery store, I know that I've touched so many surfaces. Before I do anything, I go to the bathroom and I make sure I wash my hands with soap and water first. So, so now it has become a habit, it's become a second nature for me that when I see someone that I don't know, um, I, I, I stay away. Or when I touch any other surface, I always have a hand sanitizer. I make sure I clean my hands. So you see, it becomes second nature. And then at that time, you don't end up having this pandemic fatigue because it's just become part of your routine and habit now. Yeah, that's it. You have to make it a habit to back up the two meters from others or or just always having that d- disposable or freshly cleaned uh, face covering that you can put on when you're going into a public space that doesn't allow for that two meters of physical distancing, that hand sanitizer. And using hand sanitizer, I wanted to ask you this, doctor, how much should we be using? Is it kind of like um, sunscreen? We never actually really use what we should be using when we're just putting a little dab. Should we be soaking our hands in, in sanitizer? Yeah, I wouldn't say soaking the hands, but enough to to have uh, uh, enough to reach uh, in between your fingers, uh, the right. front and the back of your hand. And the good thing is a lot of these uh, sanitizers, even the pocket ones, um, they, they, they go pretty far. Let's start with Alfred in Edmonton. Welcome to the Roy Green Show, Alfred. Hello, how are you today? 
Good, thank you. How are you? Good. I'd just like to make a statement, and if I can ask a question to Dr. Fassel, please. Sure. Okay, this is just about Edmonton. Um, we're having a real problem here with the 20 to 35-year-olds, and mm. um, it's so important that they get a burger and a beer and look trendy. It's very important to them, and it's so insulting to the rest of us. It's just we don't know what to do. We can't spank them anymore. But uh, what I do want to ask uh, Dr. Fazel is we have these real nuisance of scooters here in Edmonton. They're, they're lying all over the place, like the little children leave their toys everywhere. I wonder, um, they don't wear gloves, and they use their bare hands. Cannot be transmitting COVID, too. Oh, thank you very much, Alfred. A little bit off topic in the conversation, but certainly, I mean rentals of any kind, scooters, bikes, what have you, you would want to consistently wash your hands, right, doctor? Yes, and uh, I mean, you're right. The scooters are a way to transmit COVID-19, any surface, actually. And uh, yeah, many people don't think of that. And I think he raised an important point, especially with with this age group having uh, uh, a good number of cases rising right now in Alberta from Mm -hmm. the age group group and demographic, which, by the way, if I must say, is part of my age group, too. (laughs) Um, But I think uh, one of the things that uh, um, I would advise everyone to do is uh, if you are going to use some of these uh, rental, whether it's a car or a scooter or anything like that, it would be nice to carry um, those uh, alcohol-based sanitary wipes and probably wipe the handles um, before you go on the scooter. If If that's not possible, then um, again, sanitizing your hands before and after using uh, these uh, devices. And people who think uh, that you can only use hand sanitizer, soap and water works really well too. If you, are, as you were mentioning prior to the break, uh, doctor, when you come home from the grocery store or whatnot, you go directly to the bathroom and you get that hot water and the soap going, and you give yourself the really good hand wash to know, okay, I'm clear. Now I can, you know, safe to move about and touch surfaces in my house. We want to clean those surfaces and get into the habit, that new normal. Mark in Edmonton. Mark, welcome to the program. Well, my question actually is in regard to um, something that Dina Hinshaw said yesterday or the day before. And uh, it was in regard to uh, potentially not having immunity from COVID uh, once you've contracted it uh, and recovered. And Mm -hmm. my thought on that was, well, if you don't get immunity to COVID once you contract it and recover from it, how would a vaccine be any different? Um, I, I'd love some enlightenment on that if, if the doctor has that expertise. Dr. Right. Basil? Yes, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, and yeah, there are studies that have shown um, the percentage of those who have gotten uh, immunity from COVID-19 after they've recovered, especially um, in Spain, was uh, pretty low. Um, and, and so she was right in saying that. Um, however, when you do have a vaccine, it does work in a similar way that um, the vaccine does uh, um, introduce either um, a live virus that cannot replicate or it uh, um, does in, um, introduce some piece of the virus. And of course, that that allows your immune system uh, to build that immunity. Um, So yeah, the way it works differently is that when they do create a vaccine and they go through these trials, they make sure that the part of the virus that they do introduce 
um, and there's various mechanisms which they use to make these vaccines, does actually um, bring about this, uh, uh, does actually allow the immune system to build enough, uh, me- uh, enough memory cells uh, to fight the virus um, and, and enough immunity, uh, so to speak. I'm, I'm trying to make it not complicated over here. Yeah, um, you're giving us the layman's terms, which I appreciate. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. so, so that's something that, that is done. And this is why you see there's, uh, when, when they create vaccines, they look at two main things. Apart from the safety, they also look at effectiveness and whether it can give an immune uh, response that is enough to protect you from a second infection. But when you recover, um, it's not necessary that your uh, body created that immunity. In fact, uh, a recent study has shown that those people who are never asymptomatic, and when I say never asymptomatic, I mean those people who contracted COVID-19 but never showed symptoms until they recovered, um, there's a study that um, showed that for those people, they haven't built enough immunity. So I guess it depends, again, on, on, on how you get infected and, and what's the severity compared to in a vaccine, it's more controlled. It is fascinating what we've learned in so few months about this emerging virus. Mark, thank you for your phone call. Let's go to George in Mississauga. George, welcome to the Roy Green Show. Uh, three, thumb, three thumbs up for you, Jody. First time I've heard you. Thank you. And uh, not unlike airplane travel, local transit down here, they're stuffing the buses full like the normal without the six-foot uh, <clears throat> alliance. And But they're, they pass a lot where you have to wear a basket. I have no problem with that, but I have a condition where I can't wear it all the time. So I kick mm-hmm. it off so up and down so I can breathe. And I Sorry, while it. you're riding transit, you take it off and on? Yeah, yeah, up and down. Okay. So you can breathe. Right. So masks, people, masks are to protect like others, that. though. So you're you're okay. You're okay with that. If you've got a, if you've got breathing issues, you should. Hopefully, people aren't policing you in that because masks are about protecting others. So you just want to make sure that you're not close. And doctor, chime in here. Uh, my yeah, reaction sure. to that would be make sure that you're not close to others who are not wearing masks if you have underlying health issues. Is that right, Dr. Fazel? Yes, absolutely. Um, and generally, again, it depends on the type of mask. There are some that are, um, I guess, very thick. Um, I guess it depends, again, on the type of mask. Most of them would allow you to breathe. But if you already have an uh, existing condition that, 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 that you find difficulty in breathing, um, then yes. So what do I do about the vigilantes? Mm, that's yeah, a tough one. Well, th- there we go. Now, now there, that's where we have a challenge, right? And I think uh, um, the public health messaging probably needs to be much more clear than it is. Um, so far, um, you, you see every public health officer has been saying it's highly recommended. Um, and, uh, and in their statements, uh, you do see that it mentions that for those who have difficulty breathing, um, then they can be exempt uh, from masks. Uh, like such as yourself. And I think uh, it is important for, for everyone and all of us as Canadians to understand that you wear a mask to protect others um, and not yourself. And so if somebody uh, cannot wear a mask for whatever a pre-existing condition, again, not, not these uh, people who run around with anti-masks um, uh, propaganda, no, but if you actually yeah, have yeah. a medical condition um, and you can't wear a mask, I think all of us as Canadians have to be understanding of that. I mean, and uh, and it's a shame to see that uh, people would be uh, shaming you uh, or, or, or harassing you because you're not wearing a mask. Um, 
I think this is a this is a cultural shift, and I think we need to understand that. You know, Jordi. Unfortunately, those who 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 are featured a lot on the media, um, and and those who make a big commotion and noise out of this are the anti-mask groups, and I think yes. they are they are doing a disservice to those yes, who actually. But if I have to speak back to them when they speak to me on a bus, don't make me talk to you. I might spit on you. Yeah. Right. We yeah. don't want to get. Yeah, we don't want to get th- that sort of behavior um, being at all uh, acceptable anywhere in Canada. And anybody in earshot, please don't be a COVID cop. Please don't be a vigilante. Please understand that everybody's weathering this storm in their own way. I'm up against the clock here, so I'm going to have to say goodbye to you, George, and thank you to you, Doctor Fazel. As always, such a pleasure to speak with you, and so enlightening. Thank you for that. Thank you. That is Doctor Sajad Fazel. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 